Thank you for joining us as we walk with God. This is Brenda McCord. Walt and I are thankful for this opportunity to participate with The Awakening in America, an outreach of the Himmelreich Memorial Christian Library. Welcome, friends. Walt and I are glad that you've joined us for Walk with God this week. You know, we continue to work our way through the book of Esther, and we've come to a pivot point in the story that will not only impact just Mordecai and Esther, but actually touch the lives of all Jewish people scattered throughout the Persian Empire. And remember, we said includes 120 provinces. Haman has initiated a plan. Remember, he's been promoted to that number two position under King Ahasuerus. And he has a plan in place to wipe out the Jews, to exterminate the Jews, and exact his revenge, not just on Mordecai, because Mordecai would not show him honor and bow to him as he came through the king's gate. But this revenge is, in fact, against all of Mordecai's people, the Jews. This wicked and vengeful plan has been evidenced in many different settings all throughout history. Egypt, Rome, the Crusades, Hitler, and now we see even today through Hamas and what we are experiencing in the Middle East currently. Friends, let's turn in our Bibles today to Esther, and we're going to begin in chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Friends, do you hear the despair? Do you hear the just the, the weeping? I mean, the passage tells us that, and tearing off their clothes and putting on sackcloth There is no specific mention of prayer here in Esther chapter 4, but lamenting is a prayer. And Jewish people are familiar with that. Why? Going back to King David, do you realize that in the Psalms, there are about 65 Psalms that are actually called lament psalms you know brenda that's over a third of the psalms yeah are people crying out to god in the midst of their despair in the midst of their heartache in the midst of really deep emotion and i think that should tell us something that 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 should be an expectation when we go through hard times i mean not just hard times like Oh, we, you know, we've hurt our finger. I'm, I'm talking about the hard times, times of loss of loved ones, times of, of, of despair and what is going on. God wants us to remember that he wants us to come to him. Yeah. And, and why do we cry out to God? Well, we cry out to him because he hears. 
He actually listens and he will respond to the cries of his children. And, you know, we're just right at the beginning of today's lesson, but friends, I just want to share, as Walt and I've been studying through this chapter, it's just God's been laying on our hearts. What do we need to lament about? What do we need to bring before the Lord? And I believe, dare I say, everyone, everyone has experienced a time, maybe multiple times in their life, when they have felt they have been overcome with anguish, a a specific situation in your life, when you have felt overwhelmed with sorrow, a deep sense of pain. And lamenting helps us, especially when we find ourselves in that pit of pain and difficulty. In Psalm 6, David cries out to the Lord, my soul is in anguish. How long, Lord? How long? He cries out and he asks God to deliver him from his current circumstance. And we can cry out to the Lord and know that he hears us and he will respond according to his will and in his perfect time. You know, Brenda, even as you're saying that, um, as we read through this, this is so true to the intrigue of court life. And and with this this issuing of the decree, this king doesn't even seem to care or know he's not asking questions. We've talked about that. But but when a court official like Mordecai, when a court official like Mordecai is there at the king's gate and he's demonstrating sorrow and distress right there outside of the king's gate, this is an individual, an official that had already found out a plan to try to kill the king. And so when he's there, this is a great cause for concern and worry. It creates this sense of unease or chaos or, wait a minute, why is he here right by the king's gate and what is he doing? Before we did this, there was a, a terrible plan in place. What's going on? So as we continue on in chapter 4, beginning with verse 4, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told Esther, the queen was deeply distressed. And she sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and he ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And again, remember, this is a big square, and he is there weeping and mourning in sackcloth and ashes. And people are like, what is going on? Verse 7, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their, the Jews' destruction, that he might show it to Esther, that he might explain to her and command her to go into the king to beg his favor and to plead with him on behalf of all of her people. And just a couple of thoughts as we work our way down through this passage. Esther's young women her and her eunuchs, they know, knew that there was a relationship between her and Mordecai. They might not have known every aspect of it, but they realized that there was something going on, and she was deeply distressed. And so she sends clothes to Mordecai. She said, Stop making a scene at the king's gate. That seems to be what she's trying to say. This could look bad on me, and and Mordecai's not going to do that. As the eunuch comes to him, and he says, why are you here in the in, in the sackcloth and ashes? Why wouldn't you change into this this nicer Yeah, clothing? the idea of what are you doing? Yeah, what are you doing? This, this could look bad on us. And Mordecai tells him, 
look bad on us? This isn't going to look bad. We're going to be destroyed. This is serious stuff. This is life and death stuff, not just for me and not just for Esther, but for hundreds and thousands, maybe up to millions of people. And he, as he tells them what's happening and that the destruction is coming, he gave them a copy of this written degree, show this to Queen Esther, and then command her to go to the king and beg for his favor and to plead for his people. By the way, we read stories like this, and sometimes we're, we're like, oh, it's just a nice little story. This is not a nice little story. I mean, the emotion that is here, this is life and death. I mean, this is like as serious as it gets. And again, not just for Mordecai and not just for Esther, for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands, probably millions of innocent men, women, and children, they're going to die just because this Haman guy hates Mordecai, but he also hates the Jews. And that hatred is stirred up. That hatred is inspired by Satan himself. Hmm. And as we see this conversation going back and forth, you, you, we have to recognize, as as you're saying, Walt, that that the queen is in the palace. She's she doesn't, you know, float in and out of the gates of of the palace, but she's sending her her eunuch. It's Hathak sending him back and forth. There's this conversation. We're not really sure that she really knew this decree had been written, that this decree had been sent out in all the languages. And, and Brenda, it, you know, when you're in the palace and we're just enjoying life in the palace, maybe she didn't realize what's going on out in the real world. Well, that reality is now coming fast upon her. And when that hits her, it's going gonna, it's gonna to cause her to say, okay, what should I do? And that's really this next section. Yeah, and I think, you know, Mordecai, I think it's just really interesting. He actually gives a copy of the decree to Hathak and says, give this to Queen Esther so that she can read what has been decreed and has, remember, we talked about it last week, the king's signet ring on it. Right, right. And, and again, this idea of if anyone can help us here, you need to get serious about this right now. Yeah. So in verse nine, and Hathak went and told Queen Esther what Mordecai had said. And Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, so here we see yet some more conversation. Hathak keeps going back and forth. He's in talking to the queen and with her young women around. And then he gets sent back outside the king's gate. All the king's servants and the people of the king's province, they know if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, Mordecai, as for me, I'm the queen, but I haven't even been called to come into the king these past 30 days. And so what she now wants Hathak to go back and tell Mordecai, Mordecai, I, I could be put to death if I go in front of the king. I haven't been requested to come into the king's inner court. And friends, the reason this was is, is for the king's security. His guards are around him, 
And you only enter if you've been asked, if you've been invited for fear that you're coming in to what? Assassinate the king. And that has happened on this throne in the past. And not only that, it will happen on this throne in the near future. (laughs) Right. Unfortunately, yes. And so Esther's saying, Mordecai, do you really get what you're asking me to do? You know, it almost feels like she's making an excuse. She's mm. like, I, I, yeah. I can't go in there. And, and maybe, again, as she Or she's this, just pointing out royal she's protocol. She's pointing out royal protocol and saying, hey, I can't, do, I can't help you if I'm dead. I, I need to think my way through this. But when Mordecai hears this, his response is really interesting. And by the way, this is such a, a, a key point. This is one of those passages of Scripture that... that um, that really, in, in the midst of this book that doesn't have God as specifically named, that doesn't have prayer specifically commanded, it almost feels like it's it's kind of this this just this Middle Eastern fairy tale, but it's not. It's real. It happened. And in the midst of this book, here's this wonderful place, beginning in verse 12 of chapter 4. They told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews outside of the palace. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. God's going to take care of us. But you and your father's house will perish. Really, this is, this is saying almost prophetically, this is your chance. Your, your father's house will perish. And who knows, I love this question, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. You know, Mordecai believed the Jews were going to be delivered. He, he doesn't know how, he doesn't know what that will look like. But Mordecai knew the promises. If you go to Jeremiah 29 and read that chapter, what you'll be told is Jeremiah says, you're going into exile, and this is part of that Babylonian Medo-Persian exile. Most Jews are still in exile, but he promises them, God's not done with you. God's not going to wipe you off the face of the earth. He's going to bring you back when the time is right. And when he brings you back, he's going to continue to use you. And really, in this this question, who knows whether this is the time? I mean, that is such a profound question. And really what he's trying to do, I think what the scriptures are indicating, is he's trying to stir up something inside of Esther. This is your time. Yeah, you won the beauty contest. And yeah, you've been in the court for four years, probably, about. And, and yeah, you've enjoyed living large and living high. But this is an inflection point. This is a point to do or die. And, and you know, this book implies that even when God's people are far from him and disobedient, they're not talking about the Lord, they're not doing any sacrifice, they're not doing a lot of the things they know they should have. God is still concerned about them, that God is still working out his purposes with them. You know, Mordecai perceived Esther's moment. This was a moment of destiny. And he's attempting to motivate her to act. And, you know, I wonder if God might be doing that in your life or my life. Maybe this is a moment such as that. Maybe God's got you right in a place for you to impact something mightily for him. I don't know. But God is saying um, he's still going to be working and he's still concerned with those who he loves. And I think a head to heart right here, Walt, is the the idea of what 
situation do do you do you know each of us well but our listeners where do you find yourself today is there there's something in your life right now where if you were to take a bold step if you were to be courageous and speak on behalf of the lord to share his word i mean there's so many different ways that god uses his people to speak the truth to those around then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. So here's her response. Yes, I love how you said that, Walt, that Mordecai's, you know, motivating her. He's saying, this is your chance. It's time for you to step up. You are the queen. She said, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days night or day, I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Wow. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. You know, again, the word prayer is not stated here. It's missing, right? Mm-hmm. But we almost always associate fasting with prayer. You know, that when we fast, it gives us that time to to meditate, to seek the Lord's face. And we see this in Ezra, Ezra 8, Nehemiah 1. These two great leaders who returned back to Jerusalem after this time of exile to build the wall, to bring the people back into the land to Jerusalem, they fasted and prayed. And so even though the the um, exact mention of prayer is missing right now, and it seems to be so conspicuous, but for whatever reason, it has been deliberately chosen to avoid any explicit religious language here. But yet here's Esther. Okay, Mordecai, this is what you need to get fellow Jews to do on my behalf. My, my young women and I, we will fast as well three days and three nights, and then I will go to the king. And you know, even as we introduced this book, we talked about the God's sovereignty and then our human responsibility, that God makes promises and that God sees them through, even when sometimes we're not involved, even when we're kind of um, feel like we're on the sidelines. We believe that God is guiding individual lives. We believe that God is ordering the world's events, even the ones that seems to be spinning out of control. And whether those are in power acknowledge him or not, God is still seated firmly on the throne in the heavens, and all of mankind's attempts to to rebel, he laughs. Let me close in prayer. Father God, I thank you that according to Psalm 2, you are seated on the throne, and though men will rage and try to set their own plan, and though they will try to tear off your fetters, you are seated securely, that you have the future planned, that you are empowered, and that you will someday bring all your plans to fruition just at the right time. So, Lord, we trust you for that. We ask that you would help us to walk well today. And until we come together again, we ask that you would help us to walk with our God in a way that pleases him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us as we walk with God. This is Brenda McCord. Walt and I are thankful for this opportunity to participate with the Awakening in America, an outreach of the Himmelreich Memorial Christian Library.